You're offering me a bribe. What you have just done is illegal. And in this state, if convicted, you could be fined up to $5,000 or spend six months in a correctional facility. Oh, oh, please. No, that was dumb. I'm just, I was just making conversation. Forget it. <laughs> I'm just jerking your chin. <laughs> a newly single man becomes friends with his cable installer, who turns out to be an unhinged stalker. Join us as we discuss cutting class to hear the O.J. Simpson verdict, having a beer with a weirdo, and how you can use your answering machine to see if people loved you. Then we find out if the cable guy stands the test of time. It's the test of time, James and Alan have their say. Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with the glut. Says as a father, blah blah. It's the test of time. James and Alan have to say the movies you love still hold up today. Test of time. James and Alan have to say the movies you love still hold up today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the test of time. My name is Alan Noah, and your name is what is it again? My name is James Brief. You know this. We have done hundreds and hundreds of episodes, and I have known you for over 20 years. This is true, but I wanted you to say your name. I don't really know why. It just felt like you should say it today. How you doing? You you got a, a, a cut on your arm? I saw a Band-Aid over there. It's a scratch. Don't okay. worry about it, Al. I'll live. Okay. Well, I do worry. Okay. I worry. That's what podcast hosts do. We worry about our co-hosts. Do you know what they call band-aids in uh, in England? No, I don't. They call them plasters. Really? That's true. Yeah. Do you know what they call diapers in England? Yes. Nappies. Nappies. Yeah. And you know what they call a stroller there? Um, no. Pram. That one I know. I don't know why I know that. <laughs> Well, if we have people from England that want to tell us other things that they call different, we already know about the elevator lift thing, mm-hmm, uh, that would be uh, not that interesting to discuss, but unless there's something really fun. Sure. Um, in 1994, 1995, and, and when today's film, uh, The Cable Guy, came out in 1996, June 14th, 1996, Possibly the biggest star uh, in America, uh, maybe not the world, but certainly in America, and almost certainly to a 15, 16-year-old boy, that that was me and you, the biggest person in the world was Jim Carrey. Sure. It is really hard to overestimate like how much this guy uh, exploded on the screen because we watched on Sunday nights what were we talking about there were two shows that you talked about on Monday morning that you watched on Fox uh, maybe no three shows you the watched Simpsons. The Simpsons you watched Married with Children and what was the other show that became really hip that everyone started talking about In Living Color exactly In Living Color which was created by Keenan Ivey uh, Wayans and starring a lot of the Wayans brothers but also introduced us to uh David Alan Greer and uh, Jamie Foxx and probably most famously Jim Carrey was the breakout uh, star from that show and Ace Ventura Pet Detective that came out of nowhere then he follows up uh, Ace Ventura with uh, The Mask and then Dumb and Dumber and these films were just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and then Jim Carrey in his like fourth film he famously gets offered 
$20 million to do uh, the Joker in Batman Forever. The Riddler. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, the, the Riddler. And it was a bigger deal than Val Kilmer or, or Tommy Lee Jones. This was Jim Carrey. Like, almost the way that uh, they build the first Batman as Jack Nicholson as the Joker. And it was a real big deal. And... This was a screeching halt on Jim Carrey's career. The Cable Guy was a big box office failure. And I have to say, one of the hugest problems with this film was the uh, marketing of this film. I'm going to play a quick uh, clip from the trailer here. Come back here so that I may bring thee! I'm here for you! Don't do that! You're going to get me killed! Oh, Billy! This is like yet another uh, the, uh, trailer of wacky Jim Carrey. And, and I will tell you, the theater at certain things that were played in this clip, they were hysterical. They could not wait for some more elastic face Jim Carrey. That part where he, uh, he screams, Oh, Billy! The theater was erupted in laughter. Is it hysterical? Maybe, maybe not. That's up to you. But in 1996, that is exactly what we were looking for from Jim Carrey. That's kind of the character he would have played on In Living Color. And this is not that film. Yeah, in case you haven't seen this film in a while, or, or you've never seen it, uh, this movie is about an ordinary guy named Stephen, uh, played by Matthew Broderick, and he proposes to his girlfriend Robin, and he's rejected. Then he moves into an apartment of his own. His cable installer, Chip, played by Jim Carrey, he becomes interested in being friends with Stephen, and Chip quickly crosses several personal boundaries. Uh, Chip shows up at a basketball game with Stephen and his friends. Uh, he tries to repair Stephen's relationship with Robin. Chip tries to interfere with Stephen's work and his family. And Stephen, he's unable to convince anyone that Chip is an obsessed stalker until Chip kidnaps Robin. And will Stephen be able to save her in time? Or will the cable guy win in the end? No, of course not. The film came out on June 14, 1996. It had a $47 million budget. As I'd mentioned, Jim Carrey is now a $20 million man. And Matthew Broderick, fine actor, popular actor. I think he's probably demanding millions, you know, you know, a f fair salary. He got $2 million for this movie. That's a, yeah, millions. Yeah, one-tenth of his co-star salary. And Jim Carrey's the guy on the poster, and Jim Carrey is the draw for this movie. But Matthew Broderick does play the protagonist, and he got one-tenth the salary. I would be shocked if Val Kilmer got as much as uh, Jim Carrey did uh, in Batman Forever, uh, with Batman being by far the star of Batman Forever. Sure. That kind of thing happens sometimes. I just, you know, if that was me, that might have hurt my ego. This is the summer of Independence Day that's going to come out like two, three weeks after this. Right. Um, and the reviews were not kind. The film opened, it didn't even make $20 million. Um, it made $19 million. It was number one, but uh, it was down from his previous openings. After the first week, then it dropped to number four, then number seven. It was 10th place over July 4th weekend. Wow. Uh, yeah, this film was very quickly rejected by audiences. Um, nearly a $50 million budget, and it ended its run with $60 million. Wow. 
Um, the crew behind this film, um, I'm sure you noticed, uh, the director and the writer of this film. Yeah. Uh, the director is Ben Stiller. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the writer of the film is Judd Apatow. You know, today, one of the most uh, respected and highly successful directors uh, that's working in Hollywood today. He's not the credited screenwriter. Lou Holtz Jr. is the credited screenwriter. Judd Apatow did some rewrites and wanted a writing credit and didn't get the writing credit, but he was involved in the production and the writing and all of that. I'm not totally sure about this, but I believe Judd Apatow was the one who suggested Ben Stiller as the director. And Judd Apatow's wife, Leslie Mann, who is in a lot of Judd Apatow's movies, she was in this. This wasn't her first acting job, but it is pretty far down on her IMDb page. And she's married to Judd Apatow, correct? Yes, that is correct. Oh, I I don't know the timeline here, but uh, maybe they met on this set. Leslie Mann did, in fact, meet Judd Apatow when she was auditioning for The Cable Guy. This is where they met. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, Do you know um, what other uh, film that we have watched as directed by Ben Stiller? Uh, He directed Heavyweights, right? No, he did not. Um, I think he was, uh, I think he might have written that. Okay. But um, no, he directed another film that we saw. Zoolander? Yeah, you're correct. I'm sorry. Then um, I stand corrected. We have reviewed uh, two, uh, now three uh, Ben Stiller directed films. We did Zoolander from 2001. We did um, The Cable Guy today, uh, 1996. And then we did a movie from 1994. Oh, Reality Bites. Right, right, right. So I do want to say that he has been fantastically successful uh, with Zoolander. We are absolutely going to review this film. At some point, um, it is now officially eligible to be uh, reviewed by the Test of Time podcast. It's his most successful commercial uh, film, uh, directorial-wise. Do you know which movie I'm talking about? Oh, are you talking about Tropic Thunder? Right, right, Tropic Thunder. Um, I did not see two things that he's directed, which I've heard nothing but amazing things about. Uh, one is a miniseries called Escape at Denimora. That's about the uh, prison escape uh, in upstate New York with the uh, prison guard that was kind of the lover of uh, these two guys. Uh, and then there's apparently this fantastic new show called Severance. <gasps> you haven't seen Severance? I've told you many times I don't have Apple TV. You should get Apple TV and you should watch Severance. Severance is really good. In line with what I just said, I've heard wonderful things about Severance. Severance is really good. You know, maybe there's a little nepotism in there because his uh, parents were this famous comedian team, but he was able to deliver some real solid stuff. Yeah. Ben Stiller knows what he's doing, and he's very, very, very good at comedy, and he is very good at drama, and he is good at acting, and he is good at directing, and he is a very, very talented human being. You know, you don't think of him as the uh, successful director, but good for him. I think people are now. So let's get into The Cable Guy. And I think the elephant in the room in a podcast called The Test of Time is that this movie is about not just a cable guy, but cable television and just kind of television in general. And you have cut the cord. You don't have cable in your apartment. I do still have cable and I pay for all the streaming services because I'm an idiot. You know, uh, you bring up a really good point. Uh, cable is something that's, it's it's an, such an afterthought today. In the 90s, when you moved into a, an apartment, it's totally realistic that you might have to take a day off to wait for this cable, guys. That's sure. important. Right. This movie 
really does kind of timestamp itself as a 90s movie because of the cable and because a lot of the TV references are from the 90s or older. Like in the opening credits, there's a lot of clips of different TV shows. There's a lot of talk shows. And that makes sense for a movie that came out in 1996. Talk shows were huge in the mid-90s. They were everywhere. People were obsessed with Jerry Springer and Ricky Lake, Donahue and Sally Jesse Raphael. Like there were a million talk shows. They were everywhere. And, you know, now talk shows, not really a thing. Speaking of Ben Stiller, he directed this movie. He also appears in this movie as a former child actor who's on trial for killing his brother. And that is very deliberately a reference to the O.J. Simpson trial, the Menendez trial, these big trial of the century trials that happened somewhat regularly in the 90s. And the entire country was following everything that was happening in this trial. How through TV. Yes, there were newspapers and stuff too, but it was really TV and what they were seeing on TV. So in that regard, this movie really does feel like a mid-90s movie. You know, there are landmark moments in everyone's life. If you're a boomer, every boomer remembers where he or she was when Kennedy was shot or the moon landing. For our generation, there really are two things. There's 9-11, and really everyone remembers where they were when the O.J. Simpson uh, case was done. For, for you and I, it's probably high, it was high school in the yeah, middle yeah. of the day. I cut one class in all of high school, and I cut a gym class to watch the uh, finale on one of these portable Sony Watchmen little televisions. Wait, to watch the O.J. Simpson verdict? Yeah, to watch the O.J. Simpson verdict. It had a little bunny ear antenna, and I was able to kind of like sneak it into school and just like snuck outside with someone, and we watched it together. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so to really bring you back, like this makes sense, a cable guy. And this is no ordinary cable guy. This is a guy who, you know, comes in and immediately befriends uh, Matthew Broderick's character. He says cable, but what he really means is uh, the information that cable wires bring you. What he refers to a very cringy mid-90s term, the information superhighway. Yep. But he was saying things like, you're going to get to do your shopping at home or play Mortal Kombat with a friend in Vietnam. And... He is 100% uh, correct. And you know what? He's 100% right to be excited about everything he's talking about. It's incredibly exciting, all the stuff that we can do today from the comfort of our home. And, uh, you know, he seems to be one of the only people that's thinking it's realistically going to happen really soon. You know, I, I think that what Chip is saying in this movie is accurate and it is kind of stunning, you know, watching it today of like, oh, he was right. I don't know that it wasn't known. I think people knew that this stuff was coming. I remember I took a telecommunications or something like that class in college, and they were talking about all of this stuff, about how TV and phone and computer were going to merge and it would all be one thing. And that was, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. So I think that people understood that this was coming. And I'm just saying that so it's not like that this movie was totally prophetic and imagined things that no one else could have imagined because I think 
people were starting to imagine how this was going to go. But it is still cool seeing Jim Carrey be really excited and animated about this stuff that to him is futuristic, but it's coming soon. And then, yeah, it came soon. But let's talk about the obsession with Steven. He's basically a stalker, right? Like, that's what we would call it today. I don't know if they use that word then. Probably. I'm not really sure. But, like, he just latches on to Steven, and he just wants to be in his life. And I'm kind of a sucker for these kinds of stories where someone is acting crazy, and he's able to basically gaslight all of these other people around him so that when the, the victim is saying, I'm sane, he's crazy, it's not me, but then he looks crazy, which is what happens to um, Stephen, the Matthew Broderick character in this movie. There's something about that kind of story that just kind of works for me. I don't really know why, but I think unlike all of the talk about Cable and, you know, My Three Sons and talk shows and the trial of the century stuff, I think that does work because there are people out there like that. I mean, I've never had anyone like that in my life, you know, who like desperately wanted to be my friend and then invaded my life. I'm assuming you haven't either, I I assume. Um, I've had stories, but, um, eh, nothing like Chip. Okay. And I think that when you think of a stalker today, at least the way my mind works is I think of it as a guy who is stalking a girl that he is interested in sexually, romantically. It's not usually in a friend way. And I'm not saying that it couldn't ever happen, you know, for a guy who wants to be friends with another guy. I just think I happen to know a couple of women who have had these kinds of stalker guys who are obsessed with them. So that's where my mind goes. And you can make a movie about that with a, a guy who is stalking a, a woman. Isn't that what that uh, that Netflix show You is about? I think, maybe. You can tell that story, but it can't be this story. The Cable Guy is a dark comedy, but it is still a comedy. I think if you are telling that kind of a stalker story, I don't know if you can make that a, a dark comedy. Um, you know, they, they do make, uh, they, they role reverse this sometimes, uh, famously uh, around this time, uh, Fatal Attraction was, uh, kind of a, a female, yeah. uh, stalking Michael Douglas's character. Sure. Um, th- there's nuances in that film too. Michael Douglas is not exactly a good guy in that film either, but, um, you know, you're right that this is a comedy, but like I mentioned earlier, they market this as a Jim Carrey comedy. And I'm going to say that this is the second time I've seen this film. I watched it as a 15-year-old, 16-year-old, and I was mad at this film. This was not the film I was looking for, and I was like, what the fuck? Really? Uh, Yeah, uh, I was expecting, oh, Billy! Like, just that kind of like, yeah, rub your nipple on uh, on the glass, that's funny. I was not expecting dark, uh, you know, Judd Apatow, Ben Stiller uh, humor in that way. I don't remember how I reacted to this movie when I saw it. I know I saw it in the theater, because if it was a Jim Carrey movie and I was 16 years old, I definitely went to see it in the theater. But I think it is still fair to call this movie a dark comedy. I get it that it wasn't for 16-year-old James. There are 
parts of this movie where Jim Carrey is doing the Jim Carrey shtick. Absolutely. Maybe not enough if you just want to see, you know, another Ace Ventura style movie. But he is doing a lot of just physical comedy. The basketball scene is a lot of physical comedy. The medieval time scene is a shit ton of physical comedy. So he's doing his bit. He's kind of doing the same kind of character he did in Ace Ventura and Dumb and Dumber and The Mask. The difference is, in those movies, everyone loved him. He's just a wacky, zany pet detective. We like him. In this movie, he's a fucking psycho or sociopath. I cannot get those two straight, and I always get them wrong. But he is deranged. Steven knows it. Steven knows that this guy is mentally unwell. So it's not that Jim Carrey is different. Jim Carrey is basically the same. It's the universe around him that has changed. The fictional universe, I mean. Oh, I mean, the ending of this film, he absolutely kills himself by sheer luck. He only fractures his vertebrae. He almost impales himself and he must fall five stories, uh, if not more. Yeah. And it is a dark ending as he's falling through the air. It's this like haunting and what a horrible life this man has felt. And he makes references to his mother never loved him. And yeah. he doesn't even have a name. The television raised him more than uh, anyone else did. I mean, this guy, you feel so bad for him. But um, this ain't uh, Ace Ventura. It's a fucking dark, dark comedy. And he almost murders Robin. It seems like only through sheer luck... To Stephen uh, find out where they're going. And I have to say that it's one of those annoying tropes in films where he's like, Robin, and the, you know, the, the nosy neighbor's like, no, she left with the cable guy. And I think they said something about they're gonna ride the information superhighway. Perfect reference to earlier in the film. It's almost like Matthew Broderick should break the fourth wall and go, Thank you for that piece of information that you luckily heard and that I am getting conveyed right now. And luckily, he told me about the place to go for the information superhighway. You know, it might have even made sense for um, for Chip to leave a message for Steven saying, I'm taking Robin to the information superhighway, and then he'll figure out what it is. But no, Chip just goes to murder her. Does Maybe. He? When Steven confronts Chip, he's like, what's your plan here? And Chip is like, I don't really have a plan. And I believe Chip in that moment. I don't think he really has a plan, even though for most of the movie, Chip very much does have a plan. And everything he does is very, very calculated. He sets Steven up with a prostitute and he says that he's just doing it as like a friendly, nice guy thing to do. Okay, but he also goes into the room and takes a Polaroid picture. He's doing that for later, just in case. He's done this kind of thing before. He knows how to stalk people. There's a theory that the Ben Stiller character who's on trial for murder maybe was set up by Chip. And like Chip actually tried to be his friend and then he murdered his brother and then framed the guy. Because when you hear like the... uh the 911 call, and he's saying, oh, my brother, he's dead. It was someone who's Asian. I think it was an Asian. And it's kind of like a joke that, you know, haha, no, like this person really 
did the murder and is just kind of spinning a bullshit story on the 911 call, that's not Ben Stiller's voice. That's Jim Carrey's voice. So there, there's a conspiracy theory about that. But whatever. The, the point is, is that, yeah, it's deranged. And yeah, it is a dark ending. I feel like you're you're sort of making it to be like this super dark comedy. I feel like I've seen darker comedies than this. Like, is it that you thought it was so dark then or you still think it's a super dark comedy now? No, I'm just saying that this was not marketed as a dark comedy. It was marketed as a Jim Carrey film. Right, but separate from the marketing, like the movie itself. Do you think that this movie is like too dark? Too dark of a dark comedy? Anything like that? I mean, this is not, it's always sunny in Philadelphia dark. I mean, Chip is a damaged person. I, I have sympathy for Chip. Uh, right. You know, the, the people on It's Always Sunny are five horrible, horrible people uh, with no redeeming qualities, pretty much. Um, he's a child abused kid. Yeah. Um, you know, not physically. Um, I will say, though, I think that Steven's kind of an asshole. I think he is unnecessarily rude. You did offer him 50 bucks to hook up the cable, and yeah, he's a little uh, aggressive, but he's like, yeah, we want to hang out. If something like this happened where a guy hooked me up with something, hey, you want to go for a beer? I'd be like, yeah, sure, let's go for a beer. Okay, you're a weirdo, whatever. Let's go for a fucking beer. Like, Steven's like, oh, yeah, oh, no. I actually thought he was unnecessarily rude. He doesn't realize that this is going to be a disaster, but um, this guy has helped you. He's your weird friend that gave you the single best advice you were looking for. Your Jack Black character didn't help you get back together with Robin. It's the advice that uh, Chip gave you, and it wasn't the, you know, I'm not talking about the Owen Wilson stuff, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment but no he gave him great advice of like let her have her space tell her you're fine and i think he's gonna have a jerk to him it turns out he's right to to be wary of him but i still do think steven could have been a little bit nicer i think he's unnecessarily rude i think that's fair i think you're supposed to feel that steven is justified because he's just coming out of this breakup and his heart's broken and he just is focused on work and getting robin back and he doesn't have the mental space to make a new friend but i understand what you're saying he he could be a little nicer the first indication that steven has that chip is more than just a little bit weird is when chip leaves like 15 voicemail messages on his answering machine. It kind of made me think of Swingers, you know, and the John Favreau character. It's just calling and calling and calling and leaving all those messages on an answering machine, which as a test of time thing, you know, yeah, you could still do that and be creepy with text messages. I guess that's how you would do it. People don't leave that many voicemails. If anyone leaves you one voicemail, that's like kind of creepy now. But like, there's something off about him Stephen probably should have broke it off before medieval times or immediately after. There's all of these times when he was justified in trying to end the friendship and Chip doesn't let him. You can still feel bad for Chip and think Stephen is an asshole and still think that Chip is going way too fucking far. And I agree 100% with that. I agree. I think all three of those. Yeah. I think that Steven had a fantastic time at the party. And, you know, he he has sex with this woman. 
And had Chip maybe thought, you know, hey, I'm going to buy you a prostitute to like, you know, get back in the saddle, condone it or not, that, that might have been a conversation to have. Yes, you don't surprise someone with that. You need to know that that person is not really there for you. They're there because they were paid for. Sure. You know, if that's what you wanted, fine. But I agree with him there. That, and he was mad at him at that moment. I still think at that time... It was done with a with a nice intention. Weird as it is, and also you bought him a, a fix your lisp. I I think that's a little forward to tell someone that you need to fix their lisp. I mean, it's not a six year old. It's not a six year old being teased. That absolutely, as a pediatrician, that's absolutely an indication to fix someone's speech impediment if they're being socially uh, you know isolated. Absolutely, fix it. But. I don't think the reason this guy was uh, socially isolated was because he had a lisp. It turns out there's hints maybe he was faking the lisp the whole time. I think that's a little bit rude because there's a point when he goes, you know, my brother's a, a speech pathologist. He can help you with your lisp. And Chip's reaction wasn't, really? Like, I didn't know anyone could help me with this. I've, You know, I, I thought this is the way I always had to be. He didn't answer that way. But also, that's the gift you give him. I get you. I get what you're saying. Um, About the answering machine thing, there is one gag in this movie that I remember I said or my roommates used to say when you would come home and there wasn't a message on the answering machine, you would say, oh, nobody loves me or nobody loves you or nobody loves us or whatever. Jim Carrey says that, you know, nobody loves you because uh, Stephen's hoping for a message from Robin. And before it was all messages from Chip. That just kind of made me laugh as like a 90s thing. Yeah, that is. Um, but um, I've never been to medieval times. Have you? I have never been to medieval times. No. I think you and I should go to medieval times. I think that would actually be stupid fun. But <laughs> um, it still exists. It's in uh, Lindhurst, uh, New Jersey, I think. Uh, you know, and I'll say that medieval times is a great setting for comedy. I don't think the scene was as funny as it could have been. Uh, Jean Garofalo, she has like three lines in the film. I thought she killed it in her three lines. That was one thing that I did remember about this movie. I remembered like kind of little bits and pieces, but I remembered her saying, there were no utensils in medieval times, so there are no utensils at medieval times. Can I get you a refill of your Pepsi? It's so deadpan and it's really, really fucking perfect. Also in this scene, you have Andy Dick as like the the leader of medieval times who's like, you know, calling out the important details of the knights and stuff. Other very small roles in this movie, you have the Mr. Show guys, you have uh, David Cross and Bob Odenkirk, Kyle Gass is in this movie from Tenacious D. He's just like a guy who wants to find out the verdict in the murder trial. Then the, the cable goes out because of Chip and then he grabs a book. Doesn't have a single line. You could very easily miss these people. Speaking of missing, what a missed opportunity. You have one of the funniest men alive in this film. The character, I think, is 100% incorrect. Uh, Jack Black. His character is completely skeptical on Chip. It should be the opposite. This guy should also fall in love with Chip. 
I think one of the better scenes in the film is the scene with George Seagal and um, Robin is there and basically the whole family is everyone's falling in love with Chip. I thought this scene should have been earlier in the film. I think uh, I think when we should be a little confused about whether Chip's a good guy or not. We're convinced that Chip is a psycho at this point. He's gotten him arrested. He's gotten all this other stuff. Um, the Jack Black character is immediately like, I don't like you, Chip. But we already have Steven that, that's that character. That's like, there's something weird about this guy. I understand what he's there for because the Jack Black character is the one who eventually reveals what today would have been probably an internet search, but uh, he's able to look up. I found out what, what was weird about all the names he's giving you. They're names from My Three Sons and uh, you never find out what the guy's name is. I like that he's credited as the cable guy because right. he says his name is Ricky Ricardo or Chip Evans and these are all fake names from television. But um, yeah, I think it was a waste opportunity because Jack Black is hysterical. And he doesn't do anything funny. That's true. That's a valid point. But I think you could say that about most of these people, you know, like David Cross, Bob Odenkirk, Kyle Gass. They're all very funny and they don't do anything funny in the movie. Owen Wilson, um, you know, obviously they're they're friends. Yeah, I guess they, they know probably the, the, the same guys. Yeah, I think this is like the burgeoning New York comedy scene of the mid 90s. A lot of these guys know each other from uh, the Ben Stiller show and stuff like that. Right. And uh, the Owen Wilson scene, I don't like this scene. I mean, in a romantic comedy, when there's the foil, you're trying to get back together with the girl, but she's with a guy. I hate when this guy is such a jerk. At least let it be a challenge for her. She's got a good guy, but you're better. And I, I mean... The single worst thing you could do on a first date or if you're out in public to demonstrate that you are a bad person is to berate waitstaff. It's, it's an easy thing to write in a screenplay that uh, you're just a piece of shit because uh, you know, Owen Wilson's like, all right, uh, chief, why don't you get this and get a move on it? You know, ah, I just thought it was a little bit too like over the top, like. No, Fair. Chip should get rid of this guy because Chip's insane. Uh, I actually would have preferred that Owen Wilson's kind of a good guy. And because uh, he's like, you get the hell away from Robin. But I actually think, yeah, Robin, get the hell away from this creep. It's a little bit too on the nose that uh, luckily the guy that is uh, Matthew Broderick's competition is a piece of shit. Or, or well, a piece of shit's a little too much. He's a, He's a jerk. Right, right, right. The fight scene between Jim Carrey and Owen Wilson is pretty hilariously staged. And by that, I mean, it is very poorly staged. Owen Wilson is very clearly like going limp with his body and pretending to be in a headlock by Jim Carrey. Like, I'm not saying Owen Wilson's the strongest guy in the world and Jim Carrey's the weakest, but it looks like Owen Wilson could very easily take Jim Carrey in a fight. And just, you can tell when you're watching the movie that Owen Wilson is doing a very bad job at acting like someone who is getting beaten up. Like he just doesn't know what to do with his body. And he's like, okay, I guess I'm in a headlock now. It's fine because it's not supposed to be like an expertly choreographed fight scene, you know, from like a Van Damme movie or something like that. Owen Wilson was not hired for his fighting ability, but for his comedic ability. Yeah, and you know, uh, something I will say that I will credit this scene, something in every Ben Stiller film I love is there is a fantastic 
piece of makeup done. In heavyweights, he has a little mustache. I think it's hysterical. In dodgeball, the handlebar mustache, hysterical. Tropic Thunder, I mean, totally different conversation, but... Uh, Robert Downey Jr., the whole point of his outfit, not only his, uh, you know, in, in blackface, but also when he's in his Australian albino hysterical, but also Ben Stiller, you know, just these ridiculous muscles he has in that hysterical Tom Cruise, the, the makeup in that film, classic hysterical. And I will say in, in The Cable Guy, the outfit that is chosen for the bathroom scene, I can't imagine that if you're trying to workshop this scene, someone didn't say, can we have a scene where Jim Carrey looks like a 1984 Freddie Mercury? That mustache is hysterical. I don't know what it is, but it's just <laughs> the way he moves and the way he just... I think this scene is a 1996 Jim Carrey. This is exactly what we were looking for. I think after an hour of being in the theater and kind of the theater kind of being anxious, where the fuck is the movie that we saw in the trailer? This was a scene people were waiting for. Um, I guess. I mean, this is after the scene where Jim Carrey's rolling on the floor singing Somebody to Love. He's doing his shtick throughout. Yeah, I remember the karaoke scene being... Jim Carrey elastic, but I didn't think it was particularly funny. Gotcha. Um, I do want to talk about the uh, the ending of the uh, film. We, we touched on it earlier, but um, Chip kidnaps Robin. There's a big showdown on the satellite dish, and you feel bad for this guy, or I do at least. I think he really wants a friend. He desperately wants a friend. He wanted a mom or or a dad, and he didn't have either. And he probably had no friends at all in high school. No one knows his name. He's been fired from every job. All of his friends are only his friend because, you know, these guys call themselves preferred customers, that they're getting something out of it. And he decides to kill himself. To Stephen's credit, he goes, holy shit, man, I want you out of my life, but I don't want you, like, off the earth. Like, please don't kill yourself. And when Jim Carrey does, like, a backflip off of the satellite dish, Chip dives and straight out of, like, you know, Goldeneye off the satellite dish, which is referenced in this film, mm. uh, you know, there's this, uh, you know, desperate attempt to save him. But whereas in Goldeneye, you know, he lets go of him. In this film, Chip is like, no, I know my purpose. And my purpose, which is suddenly a weird twist in the film that I think is the lesson of, like, TV bad. And Chip decides, like, I'm going to take out all the television for everyone. And then he falls on the satellite dish just as this OJ verdict is being announced. Everyone's upset, like we all would have been if we couldn't hear the OJ announcement. But... I thought it was a little cheesy. There's a guy that's a little disappointed. He can't find anything on the TV. So what does he do? He picks up a book. That's Kyle Gass. Yeah. I was like, all right. Because, you know, today, what we have done, we just pick up our phone. Right. Well, and honestly, you wouldn't even be watching TV in the first place, probably. You'd probably just be refreshing your Twitter feed or, you know, Google News or whatever. So, yes, I I had that exact same thought when I watched it. Like, this does not stand the test of time. Yes, except I, I will uh, I will say that if it was a murder trial verdict, I think people would be watching TV. Or maybe some kind of live video, but they wouldn't be waiting for Twitter. Now, Twitter would be 30 seconds behind what you're looking for. Fair. I still think today that you know television is great for live events that you need to see. 
Fair. And even if that television is watching CNN.com on your laptop, I get what you mean. But since we've talked about the end of the movie, James, let me ask you, do you think that the cable guy stands the test of time? You know, we've made a lot of references to things that don't stand the test of time. The the cable repairman. Uh, I mean, that's a tired comedy bit for years that the cable repairman would be there anywhere between 8 a.m. and next Tuesday. And to their credit, they're usually very spot on these days. I, I usually, you know, if they say 8 to 9 a.m., they're there 8 to 9 a.m., usually closer to 8 a.m. for me. Um, Medieval Times is still around. There were a lot of Paramount things in, in this uh in this film, they make a lot of Star Trek references. Um, yeah. you know, he, Jim Carrey does a really good uh, William Shatner. Do you know what the name of the uh, show that the Ben Stiller, O.J. Simpson uh, guy was on? Like the, his 80s kid show? I forget. It was called Brother Sweet Brother. Oh, no, no, no I'm sorry. No, no, no. Brother Sweet Brother was the... Uh, made for television movie starring Eric Roberts. Right. That's right. about the murder. And did you see what channel it was being broadcast on? This is very 1996. Oh, right. It's on UPN. UPN, United Paramount Network. They were really pushing that. I remember they would push that in certain Paramount things. This film, I'm going to say, first of all, it's better than I remembered it because I really didn't like this film in 1996. I was upset that I had used uh, an afternoon to see this film when I probably could have seen something better in 1996. Um, This film has a lot going for it. I think if... uh, Maybe if they built up his craziness a little bit slower, I would have liked them to actually be really good friends in the beginning. And then he's like, hey, wait a second. Wait, she was a prostitute? You're making my whole family love you and I'm the crazy one? Maybe he is crazy. Maybe he isn't. Maybe Steven's the wrong one. No, I think a little too early on, we're in on the like, no, Chip bad, Steven good. And I just don't think the film works as well as they wanted it to work. Um, so for me, the, the, this film does not stand the test of time. It, it doesn't work for me in the the way a dark comedy can work. Uh, what about you, uh, the cable guy? Uh, what do you think, Al? I think a lot of the things that don't stand up are really television related. It's the references to these shows from the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s that I just don't think are relevant anymore. When I watched this movie in 1996, I knew what My Three Sons was. I maybe had watched an episode or two on Nick at Night. I wasn't like a fan of it, but I understood the reference. No, we didn't watch it. We were annoyed that Nick at Night was on and that you'd happen to catch on. Sure. You know, at one point, uh, Steven says, I feel like Felix Unger. Like, I understand that that's an odd couple reference. Oh, I I didn't know who that was. Okay. And I didn't know Chip Evans. I didn't know any of that stuff. Chip Douglas. Uh, Chip Douglas. Um, Ricky Ricardo, I recognize. I mean, that's the uh, husband on I Love Lucy. Right. And, you know, just the talk show stuff and the trial of the century. All of those things, I think, don't really age very well. And, you know, the, the point about, like, being raised by TV, I think that isn't really the thing now. I think if you're talking about an absentee parent who isn't around for their kid, it's not that they plop their kid down in front of the TV. Now it's they give their kid the phone, the iPad, a screen of some kind. 
you know, at the end of the movie, when Chip says that he's going to kill the babysitter by jumping onto the satellite dish, he can do that by taking out one big satellite dish. Now, how do you really do that? You'd have to take out the internet somehow. But all of that said, if they remade this movie today in 2023 and the actors who were the main characters were in their 20s, 30s, the Chip character would have been raised by TV. Because 20, 30 years ago, that's still what it was. If they make this movie in another 20 to 30 years from now, then it would just be raised by screens. So I think that even though TV, you know, broadcast television is kind of on its way out, if you did it today, it would still be TV. It wouldn't be the cable guy. It would be the internet installer. But, you know, sometimes the internet installer is from the cable company, depending on where you live. Although I feel like a lot of the cable companies have been swallowed up by telecom companies, but whatever, it doesn't really matter. Um, I think the thing that does work about this movie is the whole stalker thing. You know, having someone who is unwell, who is just really creepy and wants to be someone's friend. Again, I think that if you wanted it to be more realistic, it would probably be a romantic interest kind of stalker, but you can't really do that as a black comedy. To do it, you need it to be two dudes who are friends. I guess it could be two women who are friends, but the idea and this theme of like abandonment and needing connection and needing somebody, just needing someone you can connect with, whether you're mentally unwell like Chip or you're just kind of an asshole like Steven, Everyone's looking for those connections. And I think the the big picture themes of this movie do work for me. So even though there's a lot of the TV stuff that doesn't stand the test of time, I'm going to say the movie just barely does stand the test of time. And to be fair, if we were reviewing this movie in 2043, I might say no. Because at that point, TV might be just such a distant memory that it would all feel really, really weird and strange and foreign. But now, today, I think it does. Oh, actually, you know, one other thing that doesn't stand the test of time is that in the end, it's revealed that Chip doesn't really work for the cable company. He's just been fired and he kind of just finds out when people need cable. Nowadays, if someone's coming to your house, I don't know if you get this, you probably do in the city. I get it here in the suburbs where I'll get like a picture texted to me or emailed to me of here is your service person who is going to be coming to your house. So it would be harder to fake that. I guess you still could, but usually you get that picture if it's from a big company. So that doesn't really stand the test of time. If, if you were going to make a movie like this today about a, a stalker, would it be a repair person of some kind? Do you think that's what you would go for? I think the simplest solution would just be the Wi-Fi guy. Free internet is a real cool thing that uh, you know a young 23-year-old might not be able to afford the 50 bucks a month. Great, that's a, that's a real easy thing. You know, because he was trying to steal Wi-Fi from his neighbor, and then the neighbor cut him off, so he's got to get his own Wi-Fi now. Now the, the stalker guy hooks him up, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you in on the free stuff, and hey, let's get a beer. Okay, and you know, it goes downhill from there. Right. The extra layer with the cable guy is that he can hook up your cable and he can give you all of the movie channels for free. That's like the extra bonus. There's really not an equivalent of that with Internet unless it's like going to give you free Netflix and Hulu and all of those things. But how would the Wi-Fi guy be able to do that? 
unless he just has one huge password that he shares or something. I, I don't know. I guess you can make it work. Feels like that would be a little iffier. Um, but yeah, the idea of like, ooh, you can get the dirty movie channels for free. Like, yeah, I roll. No one needs that in 2023. But that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we have a very special guest coming back to the show. Jason Torres is going to join us again. He's going to talk about Enemy of the State, starring Will Smith. And I'll tell you, in the mid-90s, I would go to see any Jim Carrey movie. I would also go to see any Will Smith movie. So I am excited to talk about Enemy of the State with Jason. In the meantime, we want to hear from you guys. What do you think about the cable guy? What do you think about cable guys in general? Have you ever been stalked by someone who really wanted to be your friend? Have you ever been to medieval times? You can tell us those answers on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Threads. We love hearing from you. Also, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Write something nice. We appreciate that. If you wouldn't mind, we would love it. I'll read it on a future episode. Uh, And we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye.